Good afternoon. Uh, well, I think we've heard uh, in a number of the panels today that there's a lot of uh, macro factors which are pushing the shipping industry or parts of the shipping industry into consolidation. So I think this is a good panel to, to end the, the conference on. We've heard about uh, the technology side, digitalization, access to capital, the more sophisticated shipping industry pushed along by uh, regulatory aspects, and also just the fact that uh, the clients of shipping companies are becoming more sophisticated, larger, more demanding. So I think in that sense, it's no, no surprise that we have seen consolidation across different uh, sectors within shipping. And, of course, today we've got free ship owners here plus uh, a representative for the ship management side. And in terms of the, the free ship owners, I think they represent quite a broad spectrum of, of, of ship-owning interests and have all been involved in aspects of consolidation over the last couple of years. So if I just look across the panel, we have uh, Martin Ackerman, the CEO of BWLPG. We have Mark O'Neill, uh, President of Columbia Ship Management. We have today Mikhail Skov, who is the CEO of Hafnia. And we have Jeremy Nixon, who's the CEO of One uh, Ocean Network Express, otherwise known as One. So I've got some specific questions for each panel member, taking into account that they all represent uh, different sectors within shipping. And then if we get that far, we'll uh, touch upon uh, some of the sort of more general questions. So, if I pick on you first, Martin, since you're closest to me. You can. Okay, BW Group has uh, consolidation in its DNA. And more recently, BWLPG has successfully completed the takeover of Aurora LPG and pursued a 1.1 billion merger with uh, Dorian LPG. And now BW Group has acquired a majority stake in LPG owner Epic Gas and an offers on the table to acquire the, the remaining shares. Can you describe generally from a management perspective uh, the time that's involved in pursuing a merger and how you structure yourself during the initial stages of a merger to ensure that the day-to-day -day and operational management of a shipping company isn't adversely impacted? Uh, thank you, Greg. <clears throat> a very relevant question. I would be lying if I said that it's not a very time-consuming process to um, even to consider and strategize around a merger and get to the stage where we actually propose it uh, to end, of course, with a finally an execution or non-execution, as the case may be. Um, I think from our perspective, it's been extraordinarily important that the strategizing process is happening, of course, on the senior or executive management level, uh, alongside our financial team uh, because often these are financially driven considerations. So there is, of course, a strategic process on why or why you are not pursuing a merger. And, of course, that needs to be tied into timing, uh, financials, uh, and, and so forth. Then once you get into specific projects, then from our perspective, it's been important to compartmentalize that within a specific team that uh, that works with the M&A 
project uh, to get it to a board level discussion. First, of course, it, it's, 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 it's formalized within the company itself. Once we, in a management session, consider this to be something we, would, uh, we want to proceed with, then we take it to the, uh, to the board level. And that entire process has to run uh, its own call separate from uh, operations. Then uh, once you get into this sort of the, the whole process of, uh, of the M&A, I think the most important part there is to keep it completely separate. So in our case, we've been isolating our commercial director and our technical and operations director completely from this process. Of course, they, they do get involved, but not uh, in a majority way. Sure. Then just a follow-up question. Uh, I mean, some of the, 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 the merger movement I just mentioned in respect to BW Group and BWLPG has been more traditional, but actually there's been some more recent news coming out of BWLPG in particular, more of a sort of vertical integration. And perhaps you could just touch upon the, the, the now new business line of looking to trade the LPG and the background behind that uh, decision. Yes, yeah, so the, 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 I think the, the, um, uh, the Aurora acquisition we did where we purchased uh, a company which was in distress was trying to buy a company uh, at the bottom of the cycle uh, and then knowing that we would be suffering uh, for low rates for an extended period of time. The proposal with Dorian was, was quite different from that. Um, that was uh, from our uh, point of view. I know we're being accused a little bit of being hostile, but that was more of a technical um, reason that we had to do it public. Um, but that was more of an attempt to to bring together two companies and agree on that. But maybe we can touch on that later. On the vertical integration, I think many shipping segments, not just LPG, are under pressure from uh, from lowering margins, whether it's financial, operational, or otherwise. We're seeing pressure from charters moving into our traditional territory. We're seeing the freight forwarders. I'm sure Jerry can talk about uh, a lot about that. Um, and, and that just in a, you know, forces us to have to think outside of the box. And we have been through three years of lower, low margins. This initiative we're doing on trading is more of a defensive move to see how can we utilize our um, utilization of the ships when our clients don't want them. So it's more of trying to uh, utilize the ships and improve the, uh, the operating efficiencies of, uh, of our fleet. You touched on freights there, so you must be happy the last seven days or so because there's been a bit more positivity in the LPG space. It's been a bit more than seven days, but it certainly has been uh, uh, you know, 100, 165% up the last 30, 30 days. Um, we did expect the market to recover, but... Um, uh, we have been uh, much more muted in the way that we have formulated this outlook. Uh, but it's certainly, certainly encouraging to see that finally we're um, uh, in the black territory again. Good. Uh, moving on to you, Mark. Uh, we're obviously looking at a different angle here. You're on the ship management side. And I guess the, the first question is, you know, the move to consolidation, so larger shipping companies... Uh, maybe more geographically spread, does that create a risk or an opportunity for external ship managers? Good afternoon. Um, I don't think it uh, changes anything, actually. Whether you're, as a ship manager, whether you are performing or providing your services for a large consolidated operator such as uh, the one that Jeremy 
runs or, in fact, uh, a, a one-ship operator. We shouldn't really be focused on that. We've, we've always said throughout that to be successful in any business, you have to provide a relevant, compelling service. Relevant, what does relevant mean? Uh, relevant means relevant to the particular client. We have to be client-facing, so we have to provide all of those services that our particular client, whether uh, he or she operates 150 ships or one ships, wants. Uh, compelling, we have to make sure we provide it at a price and at the levels of efficiency that that particular client wants. And finally, the service, there has to be a, a, a quality to the service we provide to differentiate ourselves from our, our competitors. So I, I don't think it, it matters. You have to give the client what he or she wants at the price and at the efficiencies that they want uh, and a, a tailored quality service. So that applies from the one chip owner right the way through to the uh, 100 chip owner. However, I do think that uh, as far as we're concerned, as, a, as a, one of the larger international ship managers, uh, we do lend ourselves our size and our ability to achieve the economies of scales, the efficiencies, the investments in technology does lend itself to working with the larger consolidated uh, companies. So I do see there is an opportunity and perhaps an ability to distinguish ourselves from the smaller managers who won't be able to uh, put in uh, the levels of investment, achieve the scales that we can. Not to say that there isn't still an important place for those smaller uh, operators, but uh, there is no doubt, I think, that some of the larger consolidated companies will want to work with the bigger partners who are... We heard today about uh, digitalization, who are compatible on the same platforms, on the same digital platforms uh, as they themselves and have the same uh, service levels. So I think it's a, it is an opportunity, of course it is, uh, but we're focusing on the smaller ones, just as the smaller operators, just as much as the bigger operators, and that must be right. And do you envisage uh, the external ship manager industry also going through an element of consolidation? As you say, bigger clients, more demands, more... Uh, focus on technology, uh, more impact of uh, regulatory and how you run ships? Do you see more consolidation within the ship managers? Yes, I mean, certainly in, in, in our little world of, uh, of ship management, there is huge drivers for uh, consolidation. But I think with all this talk about consolidation, one forgets that there are a number of companies starting. There's lots of startup ventures too, and that will be the same for shipping. As the big companies, the big liner companies, the big, big tanker companies consolidate, so too will uh, smaller companies will come up and, and start and see opportunities and see niches. So, yes, there are. Uh, there is a considerable amount of consolidation in the in the ship management. Uh, arena as, uh, as there should be. Uh, bigger companies are able to achieve economies of scale, are able to achieve performance optimization criteria that perhaps the smaller ones uh, can't, but there's also opportunity for those smaller companies to thrive and, and, uh, uh, and grow. Thank you. Uh, moving on to uh, Mikhail. 2019 is proving to be the year of consolidation for the product sector. With the merger of BW Tankers and Hafnia Tankers in January and the consolidation of Capital Product Partners and Diamond S Shipping in March, from the perspective of Hafnia, can you elaborate on the advantages of a larger platform and if there's any unique features to the product sector right now that makes consolidation interesting? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks a lot for that. Um, 
I think there are a couple of issues probably to focus on when it comes to the advantages. Um, I mean, certainly for us, when we look at the uh, customer landscape, there is no doubt that you're seeing a lot of build-up or consolidation within the oil trading companies that are growing and growing. And I think as far as we're concerned, you know, as a ship owner, looking at the, the freight environment and how our ships are employed, over the last five to seven years, it's been clearer and clearer that the volatility, the geographical spread of where you trade, means that if you want to capture all the spikes on earnings, you have to be global, you have to be present. But even if you were the smartest operator in the world and were able to position yourselves right geographically, you have to bear in mind all the time that clients also need you to be present at all times. So scale is more about really having the ability not to go from zero to 100% in your presence around the world, but be able to uh, balance the percentages in how you, uh, how you employ your tonnage, east, west, south, north, etc. So I think scale in that is extremely important from that perspective. So that, that's one of the key issues. Um, I think at the same time, maybe just as a flip side of scale, and I think this is sometimes a bit overlooked, is that you can have a lot of theoretical consolidations on the paper, which we've seen all the time, and I think you mentioned it in, in your initial statement, uh, private equity capital that are looking for uh, optimizing their exit opportunities. But I think what once you always be aware of is just because it looks right on the drawing board and just because you look at the fact that, you know, from a financial perspective, this is a great thing to do, you need the right people. And I think it's, it's overlooked sometimes that scale with the wrong type of people in your organization can equally be a problem. Uh, you imagine, like for Hafner today, we operate 185 vessels. If the market is bad and you have them all in the spot market, uh, it takes a specific type of character to handle that type of pressure in the day-to-day -day handling of ships. Uh, so I think it's, it's overlooked sometimes that you need to combine this consolidation with the right people to support uh, the financial strategy. And touching upon that, uh, it's not a scripted question, but obviously the first year or so of a, of a merger is utmost importance, trying to create you know, efficiencies, trying to find synergies, uh, trying to create a culture of cooperation and, and consolidation. I mean, how have you, uh, you know, managed yourself? Have you got uh, different managers with responsibility trying to bring these two companies together and to... Uh, make sure that you make the most because the first year is probably the toughest of any uh, merger. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, you've got to, uh, you have to organise yourselves internally in terms of having, uh, you know, the right organisational setup to handle all the issues. But I think also maybe looking back already, we're only a few months into this. Uh, I think the most important thing is also to make sure you don't launch too many different initiatives at the same time as you're trying to, uh, to do a merger. I think one of the key messages, certainly from my side to, uh, to my teams, have been keep on focusing on running the business because basically if you start deviating in the middle of, a, of an integration process and launch too many different initiatives, you could run the risk of people getting defocused. So I think the first six months is really about identify the integration issues, identify some of the key areas like IT and others that are fundamental for running the business, and then make sure you've described a long-term vision so that people know that once you kind of work yourself through the initial issues, there is a clear long-term strategy of where we're heading afterwards, but really make sure not to overstress the organization in that sense. And just one final question. Uh, 
the name Hafnia was maintained. Uh, any background on, you know, uh, not including the BW name in the, in the formal name, all part of the fact that it's part of the BW group? Well, it wasn't really maintained. It was called Hafnia Tankers before, but, uh, and now it's Hafnia. No, but I think, joking aside, it, it's, uh, you know, the rationale actually is, is I think, is, is in some cases a logical one. PW is obviously a, a massive global international brand uh, across shipping and many other areas. Uh, Hafnia in itself was a, uh, a strong brand in product tankers. So the name is actually Hafnia, a member of the BW group, and that actually is the signal uh, that we're trying to combine the best of two worlds, create a new brand in the product tanker sector, but of course also recognize that the BW group on a broader scale is already an extremely strong uh, brand. Thank you. Uh, last but not least, uh, Jeremy, uh, you're obviously sitting in a sector of shipping that's perhaps seen the most consolidation. Uh, since 2016, there's been a wave of consolidation in the container shipping industry by means of merger, joint venture, and global alliances. Due to this, in factoring current new build orders, it's estimated that 75% of the world container ship fleet by 2021 will be owned by just seven carriers compared to 37% in 2005. Keeping this in mind, in the regulatory landscape, do you think any further M&A in the container shipping space is possible in the short to medium term? Thank you, Greg. Is that okay? It's good. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think uh, without doubt uh, there's been a, a really significant consolidation in the liner container shipping industry and uh, we could really probably track that back over the last 20 years, but the, the big acceleration has been after the Lehman crisis, and particularly in 2013, 14, 15, and into 16. And that all comes back to, you know, very stressed balance sheets, cash flow issues, um, very poor returns on investment. Uh, it's like being a farmer. Uh, you, you expect a famine, one in every six years, but actually you could say in shipping, particularly container shipping, We've almost had a famine every two years and then finally a famine every year. Um, and maybe that's not unique to container shipping, but maybe there are two or three underlying root causes that, that do differentiate container shipping a bit from the other sectors of shipping. Um, one is the economies of scale. Uh, when you're a container shipping uh, company, you're the owner of the vessel assets, but you're also the operator. So you're very, very focused on fuel costs and uh, you're also focused on being in consortia, operational consortia, and therefore there's this drive for scale, this, the, to, to push up the size of the ships as quickly as possible. And therefore, um, you need to have an enormous amount of capital investment, and you need to have the wherewithal to be able to order and build much larger ships than you did originally. Um, and secondly, of course, the ships, it's not just about buying, building one ship, you need sometimes 10 or 12 ships to make up one loop system, plus all the equipment that goes with that, all the containers, so you're looking at over a billion-dollar investment sometimes just to deploy uh, large ships in a particular trade lane for a one-weekly service. I think the other area is um, it's not just about the ships. It's also about the land-side operation. And as you're aware, container shipping companies are common carriers. They're offering an end-to-end -end or even inland services as well. Therefore, they're very rich in terms of having a large footprint geographically within countries. Um, active in 120 countries in the world. We have over 250 offices globally. Um, we have systems. We have a lot of staff. And therefore, when you start putting companies together in M&A terms, the synergies potentially are larger 
on the container shipping side than if you're just a pure bulk operator looking at putting fleet scale together. And maybe the third one is the drive for global coverage. I think we all see the need for global coverage generally to reduce risk in terms of trade risk and being able to deploy assets into different markets when those markets are not so strong in some areas. Yes, of course. But also on the container side, we have a lot of customers that are driving towards global coverage and want global, global services. They want to have one throat to choke. They want to deal with one particular operator who can cover all their requirements across multiple geographies. And then we have the equipment side. Uh, very large fleets of equipment. So, you know, we have over 2.5 million TU worth of equipment. And also being able to balance that across different geographies. There's a lot of economies of scale there as well. So maybe that's um, one, one of the, uh, some of the root causes behind why we may have seen a stronger, faster consolidation, particularly on the container shipping side, than we've seen in some of the other, other shipping sectors. In terms of getting to your point about uh, mergers and acquisition, um, well, it's, it's been a pretty significant the last two, three years. Um, and obviously in the case of one, uh, we took three different separate shipping companies and put those together as one carrier. That was a lot. We've seen other activities with our other competitors. Um, you can't rule out there being more, uh, and probably there will be longer term, but uh, it's getting a bit more challenging. Um, there are less free flow, free players to, to, to absorb. Uh, the regulatory is getting tighter. So maybe in still in some of the regional markets, some of the more uh, niche carriers, there's probably more scope there for, for, for consolidation on, on the container shipping side. Uh, the own, your own sort of consolidation attracted the attention of the competition authorities. Uh, can you maybe explain your dialogue with uh, the US and South African authorities and maybe give some tips for those out there who may be considering a, a, a merger that could impact competition and how best to, to deal with uh, those authorities? Yeah, I mean, it, was, um, it is a global, uh, in any global M&A uh, involving, as I say, 120 countries in the world, we have to deal with many different regulatory authorities. And obviously the key ones are the EU, uh, particularly uh, North America, with, and then also China. And uh, also we have various individual markets in, in different continents as well. And each of those has some challenge, um, especially with the likes of putting one together. Uh, this was brand A, B, and C being put together to create a new brand D. And that is not your normal uh, M&A uh, activity. Normally, it's a question of A taking over B and gradually merging B into A, maintaining the brand name, maintaining the, the, the competition or the regulatory, uh, the corporate identity, the same tax authorities, and it's more a question of just looking at the market shares. But in our case, it was actually how are these three companies operating today? Will there be less competition now because the three brands going down to one? And secondly, uh, trying to understand some of the complexity of these three different companies also being parts of three larger group activities which are also active in the transport and logistics sector. So that did provide its complexities and I would say that in some countries it was quite clear who the regulatory authority was that was going to oversee this activity and in other areas that probably wasn't so clear and that maybe delayed things a little bit. Um, but you have to work with what you've, you have in front of you and uh, we, uh, we did that, uh, we got through the process, and some of those authorities took a little bit longer than we expected, but at the end of the day, we got over the line, 
and we got regulatory clearance right, right across the globe, and we were able to get on the implementation. Uh, would we have liked longer time for the implementation? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and particularly in the two markets that you referred to, that was particularly challenging with only one to two months' notice before we could actually start bringing our staff together in implementation. But that's water under the bridge. It's well behind us now. We're up and running, and, and, and we're stable and, and uh, operating as normal. So thank you. And just very quickly, the choice of Singapore for the, the so-called fourth brand, i.e. you set up here, was there any... Uh, can you give some of the background to why Singapore? Yeah, I think uh, all of us uh, are very aware of, of the different international maritime centers around the world, and of course Singapore is one of the leading ones now. And uh, of the three, uh, three companies, all three have their uh, parent companies back in Tokyo. And of course we looked at that before, but uh, already all three companies had moved their, effectively their line of division outside of Japan over the last four or five years. Um, so it was not a question of really retreating back to Japan. It's more a question of looking at which city uh, could provide a good HQ, could provide the right uh, economic environment, the right environment to, to host large multicultural teams uh, where we could build up that, that, that expertise and, and execute as uh, organizationally. And uh, a number of players, but obviously Singapore was a significant one already uh, one of the three already had its global head office here, and the second one already had a substantial amount of activity here. So it, uh, it was a question between Singapore and two or three other centers. And at the end of the day, we felt that this gave us overall the best package in terms of being able to have a good quality uh, global head office with, with good capable staff uh, in, a, in, a, in a financially astute manner. Yep. Thank you. Uh, so, some general questions to the panel, and uh, I'll start with you, Martin. Uh, apart from the size, age, and composition of the fleet of a merger target, what other key characteristics of a target should be considered? I think the panel <clears throat> more, more or less touched upon uh, many of them, uh, latest with, with Jeremy talking about geography, where do you place the HQ, so you, you want to think about location where you can have multicultural staffs you want to take think about uh, of course financial planning is is uh, is very much within the, the post merger strategy um, I think Michael mentioned uh, vision strategy and and one thing I'd like to add to that is the, is, is the values of the company so ideally or at least when you go forward you may not be able to merge with uh, someone who shares the same values as yourself, but I think it's enormously important to think about how you can drive an organization uh, forward uh, over several continents. Um, and one of the things is, of course, a clear strategy and vision, but even more so a value-driven approach to how you behave, how we, we operate together, how you create that transparency and dynamic within the teams. Sure. Uh, Mikael, have you got any, anything to add from the ship-owning side? Well, I think maybe what you should uh, should add as well is uh, I think you need to understand the the composition of your shareholder base. I think in many of these consolidations and M&As, uh, one thing is that you have a commercial strategy, but I think it's also important to understand really what is the the composition of the shareholders, what is what is their strategy, exit strategy, if any, and just make sure you get that incorporated from day one um, before we kind of start out on that journey. Thank you. 
Uh, Mark, I'll, I'll go on to another question for you. Obviously... Can, can, uh, can I just add on to that last question? Sure. Because that, that's relevant, having, having gone through a, a, a merger ourselves. I, I think one can't underestimate the importance of culture uh, and, and really analysing the culture of the two companies before a merger and trying to, if necessary, uh, bring those cultures into uh, alignment or create a, a new culture. And also, I, I don't think that the word merger necessarily means putting the companies completely together. There's no earthly reason why one plus one must equal three. There may well be justification for going through a merger if one plus one equals 2.2 or 2.3. So there are some synergies there. Uh, it doesn't have to mean a full-scale merger of all business activities. So I think people go into mergers for different reasons, uh, uh, M&As for different reasons. You don't have to... Uh, uh, go into one of these processes thinking that there's going to be a D that comes out of it that, that, that merges all three. It can be a very different beast for different, uh, different projects. Okay, as we've touched upon, I mean, all four panel members have encountered mergers recently or some form of consolidation. Uh, with that in mind, perhaps you could all comment on any sort of teething problems in the early days that management should be on guard about and maybe give your recommendations. Uh, maybe start with Jeremy. Yeah, I think there's, um, in an M&A cycle, there's really sort of three parts to it. One is your own strategy in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And uh, you do a lot of theorizing uh, internally, looking at uh, your t which companies you want to put together and the rationale behind that. And you look at you do your own synergy calculations, etc. And that can take a lot of time. And, uh, you, but you have to maintain some flexibility in your thinking. I think if you go in with just only plan A is going to work and this is what we expect is going to happen, then you may have a few surprises when you get into part two, which is the actual negotiation, where you are actually uh, trying to construct uh, the, 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 the M&A with, with the party that you're looking to take over or, or merge with. And, and the negotiation can often take quite a long time, takes, takes a lot of uh, thought process, a lot of negotiating time, and uh, you may have to be a little bit more flexible in your negotiation than you might have thought back in the original preparation days. But by far the most important is part three, which is the execution. And, uh, you know, management teams that uh, just focus on one and two and then kind of we got, we got over the line by signing the deal uh, and, and don't focus on part three, then, then that's when the problems w will come through. And uh, um, I, I always felt in our situation that um, that we had to we had to reserve our energy for really part three because it was going to be a, a very very significant um, uh, exercise, uh, time consuming. I, I can honestly say that our management team worked 24/7 for for a year uh, on the actual execution and uh, be prepared and think through all the types of things that could potentially go wrong in that regard. So. As Mark says, there are different ways of doing the execution and you don't necessarily always have to bring the brands together or create a new brand like we did in our case. But uh, we were literally having to start a company from new and uh, that meant new, new staff, new systems, new offices. Um, but we got through the battle and uh, we got through the other side and I'm pleased to say that uh, we're a lot stronger company because of it. And I think it does, as rightly say, the panelists here, that it comes back to the culture of the company and the desire of the company. And you have to maintain that positivism. You have to drive the staff and work with them in a positive way and really make them believe they can win the battle. And you'll come out the other side. And when you do, uh, it's actually a really positive experience. 
but when you're in the heat of the battle, uh, don't forget how much energy and time it uses up, and, and a little bit of grey hair as well. Thank you. <laughs> Can I add that you asked for um, tips for the early part of a merger, and I, I think uh, one, uh, one important thing is maybe even before the early parts of a merger, uh, when you're considering the merger, to, to consider whether you're doing the merger at all, because I think many of us are in, in you know, business, once we get fixated on the deal, it's easy to want to continue and get the deal done. And I think it's just as important to be very, very disciplined, making sure that you are completely locked in on what the objectives are uh, with the benefits if, uh, for, for, of course, the shareholders and for the companies and uh, as a means to, to move forward on the strategy. And, for example, our ex uh, case here recently with, um, with Dorian, we were quite clear from the get-go that we said, unless this is a concessional, unless there is agreement on both sides, then we, we will not push through with, um, with the merger proposal and push it through in the AGM and so forth, even though you could be sort of maybe even more fearful in that way. And we decided to say, listen, if we don't see these things eye to eye, um, we don't see equally unvalued generation for shareholders, then it's, it's better that we don't do it. Sure. Could I could I just add to what to what's been said? As far as, far as our uh, experience is concerned, I, I would back up what Michael said. Uh, first and foremost, it's focus on the business throughout this process. At the end of the day, there is no point in two companies merging if if at the end of that process you realise that your your entire client base or a, or a significant proportion of it is upped and left um, because they don't like what you're creating. So really focus on the business. Uh, be flexible. Uh, it may be that your original objectives don't remain uh, true to uh, the, uh, the, the intention going forward. And it may be, as in our case, we, we intended to have a full merger. Now we have a merger at shareholder level and two companies performing independently perfectly uh, well, what their clients want to do, and, and looking for synergies lower down uh, on the on the administrative side. So be flexible as to um, what you're trying to achieve. Thirdly, buy-in, buy-in from the people. It's all great to, to to listen to what the shareholders want to achieve, uh, and indeed the management want to achieve. But if you don't get the buy-in from the people in the various organisations, then there is absolutely no prospect of the, the 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 merger being successful. And finally, my final point is patience. You know, sometimes mergers take longer than originally anticipated. And uh, Jeremy quite rightly said he would have liked to have more time. Sometimes time is what is needed and can perhaps make a, an unsuccessful merger into a successful merger if you, if you allow yourselves that, uh, that time. Thank you. Uh, perhaps the last question then for the, for the panel. Uh, as we all know, shipping is capital-intensive industry. Can you elaborate to what extent financial advisors and investment banks have been involved in your respective consolidations? And then separate to that, you know, to what extent did you consult with uh, your existing ship financiers, so your mortgagee banks and that of the target, given that you know, a larger consolidated company may pose them difficulties in the sense that you know, they're risk weighting on a particular uh, segment in shipping or the combined... Uh, merged entity, maybe not what they necessarily had in mind when they did the original deal. Uh, if I just start with you, uh, Mikhail, please. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, uh, again, it depends a little bit on um, 
what kind of situation you stand in when it comes to your first questions about financial advisors and, 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 and how your interaction with the banks are. I mean, I think in any process, um, particularly if it drags out, it's always, I think, a good idea to have an objective voice in the room. And I think uh, when it comes to Hafni and, and BW, it wasn't really, uh, an advisor wasn't really needed to come up with the smart idea of merging the companies. But, uh, and actually the landscape was quite obvious what was going to happen in the product tanker sector. But I think what had happened was that lots of people had been talking, trying to merge, consolidate, create bigger platforms, and nothing happened. And I think part of the reason was that it went into circles and you kept on having the same people voicing the same views, opinions all the time. So I think financial advisors, for one part of the question, I think was important for us more to put that objective voice in the room to make everyone calm about what is being said, why are we doing it? And secondly, of course, also, quite frankly, in these processes, you need someone to process data and make sure that you keep speed in the process whenever that is needed. So that's for one side, I think, on, on the banks in general, without any doubt, um, you know, discussions with, with, with the people that finance your business is obviously extremely important and uh, something that we discussed prior to the merger a lot. Um, I think it's, it's another advantage that maybe we haven't touched too much about is the consolidation scale uh, in today's world also give you and should give you uh, the capability of competing on your cost of capital. Uh, this is a differentiator which we 10-15 years maybe didn't think so much about in shipping because basically we were used to getting finance for everything we bought uh, at a kind of standard terms. Now it's becoming a massive differentiator in our business so I think from from a perspective of going forward and consolidate, this may be one of the biggest advantages as well. Get your banks uh, involved, make sure they are comfortable with your long-term strategy, and more importantly, try to see if you can improve on your terms, uh, offering uh, a high amount of, uh, of uh, security. Uh, Jeremy, anything to add? Uh, not, not really. I mean, obviously, the financial advisors and your banks are absolutely critical to any M&A activity you do, and you must involve them as early as possible and keep them updated throughout the transaction. Thank you. Uh, Martin? Yeah, uh, no, I was just going to say exactly the same on the, on the banking side. It's, it's very important to, um, to have your uh, existing lenders uh, aligned with your process. We, uh, we needed consent to lower um, the, uh, the shareholding limits of BW Group if we had gone through with, uh, with, B uh, with the Dorian merger. And... Um, uh, and of course, that requires a lot of conversations, and you need to be frank. But and I think if you build a track record of being open, transparent, consistent, and disciplined, then the banks uh, will will follow you. And of course, they are very concerned on, on, on only on the up, on the downside. Really, they don't want to hear about all the prospects of the potential upsides of a merger. They they protect the downside, and liquidity risk is their main concern. Sure. Well, we're coming to the, we're within the last minute. Maybe I'll just ask a very quick last question. I mean, in each of your respective sectors, do you envisage uh, more sort of consolidation over the next 12 to 24 months? Or, uh, I'm not sure. Martin, why not pass along to you? <clears throat> I still think there's room for consolidation in, uh, in, in, in our segments. Um, where it's coming, I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we continue to look at... Um, opportunities, but we don't have to do anything. We're, we have a good platform, and we, we keep on building that. Mark, any comments? Uh, for sure. There will certainly be consolidation, but there will also be um, 
new companies coming in and, and filling niche areas, but uh, certainly consolidation. The bigger consolidated companies will want to work with the uh, uh, bigger consolidated partners to, for all the good reasons we've talked about. Yeah. Uh, Mikael, you've started the trend. Will it continue? <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, I mean, equally so, I, I think for the product of business, you are going to see more. Uh, I probably have my doubts whether you're going to see lots of big consolidations. Uh, maybe you're going to see more that the bigger units that have been created already will continue to grow by acquiring uh, smaller entities that are out there uh, and, and in a way consolidate the market from a smaller perspective. I think that's probably the more likely solution. And I think, Jeremy, you've already answered the question, unless you want to... Yeah, I think never say never. And secondly, that we've all as an industry got a very high hurdle to jump over with the IMO 2020 coming in January. And uh, companies that do not handle that well or recover those additional costs will put themselves under more financial strain, which could create further consolidation down the line. Thank you.